Okay, what's the date? Uh, April the 3rd, 2012. Let's see, Easter is this. No, Easter, uh, Easter is this Sunday. And <laughs> uh, maybe Thursday I might say something, give y'all, if I'll forget, y'all remind me to give you little insights that aren't always uh, recognized for Good Friday. Can y'all remember to do that? Thursday. Remind me, and I'll give you some insights on Good Friday, if y'all remind me. Okay. All right, let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, the option of rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your faithfulness and for this time that we can come <coughs> and learn and grow and be prepared for whatever's coming our way. We thank you for your grace that is sufficient for all things. We recognize we cannot be good servants apart from knowing and applying your word. So we pray that you will help us to focus this evening. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, first thing I'm going to do is give you a little, well, it's somewhat medium long as far as an issue that I have found this. I, yeah, I found it so long ago, I don't remember where I found it, but I was going through my notes, and I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this someday because it is, I, I like it so much, and I happened on it today, so I thought this would be a good time to, um, to address it. It has to do with kids going to college. And this guy, this author, as far as I'm concerned, has nailed it. I never hear this perspective anywhere. I thought maybe I was the only one that had it. But it's refreshing to see someone else. This is uh, Gary Gibson from Seattle, Washington. And I think he is the editor. Well, I probably shouldn't tell you what he's <laughs> Uh, some of you will like this, and maybe some not. I don't know. But he's the managing editor of Whiskey and Gunpowder. <laughs> That's the name of, I probably shouldn't have told you that to the end. But anyway, uh, and I hadn't been there. All I know is I read this, I liked it, and so I'm going to give it to you. I hope you all will have an open mind. And he goes on to say, <clears throat> college is not necessary for most people. That in itself, right off the bat, will get some people on edge. It never was. In fact, the preoccupation with college has left America bereft of its former ability to create wealth. An unhealthy cultural myth has flourished that says everyone must go to college and get an advanced degree, even if it's something for which there is virtually zero market demand. Meanwhile, below market interest rates and government-backed loans have lured a couple generations of Americans down the road to higher education. Further, the kind of education college provides, indeed all of American schooling from kindergarten onward, doesn't produce innovators, entrepreneurs, and job creators. America, uh, excuse me, American academia is good at producing writers, literary critics, and historians. It's also good at producing professionals with degrees. But we don't have a shortage of lawyers and professors. America has a shortage of job creators. 
And the people who create jobs aren't traditionally professionals, but startup entrepreneurs. So it is that increasingly over the past couple of generations, there has been a gross misallocation of time and resources into higher education, aided and abetted by the central bank and the federal government. Millions have been misled into pouring their young adulthood into endeavors that, endeavors that won't pay off and going deeply into debt for it. The federal government has encouraged the higher education much like it did home ownership. The central bank made the borrowing easy with low interest rates, which powered the real estate bubble as well as the higher education bubble, while government entities backed loans or through uh, those loans. And have you heard of the education bubble? Well, it's financed, just like, you know, the housing bu uh, bubble was created by these low interest rates and given to people who uh, could not really uh, afford being in these homes. And he's saying now, he's saying there's an education bubble, uh, again, financed by the c central bank and the government uh, to get young people into schools which they don't belong. The bubble start can be traced to the GI Bill whereby the government got into the business of showing more, excuse me, shoving more people into college than the market would bear. Over time, the same easy loans and guarantees got extended to most of the population. Over time, some bad notions gained traction. College came to be seen as a ticket to the good life as opposed to something that people already destined for greater things might undertake to help get them there. In the last 30 years, higher education has come to be viewed as a human right, something that governments are obliged to guarantee. Lost is the notion that a higher education is a path for exceptional, for exceptional, particularly those exceptional people going into the hard sciences. Of course, this doesn't do anything to change the essential ability of the people now being shoved through the system. All is done is water down the quality of what's being offered so that everyone can join in. Exceptional people still become scientists and engineers. Everyone else gets a master's in some field that was recently invented to meet the artificial demand for advanced degrees. For people who couldn't be scientists and engineers who had a, full, a head full of misguided notions and a boatload of borrowed money. I want to say that again. How many young people are in colleges today, in the universities, who have a head full of misguided notions and a boatload of borrowed money? Worse, the education came to supplant things like entrepreneurship, initiative, the willingness to take risks, to accept and learn from failure. But most students learn nothing about sales in college. They are more likely to take a course on why sales and capitalism are evil. Indeed, we hate to keep turning to the Occupy movement. This was when Occupy Wall Street, remember that? But it is full of poster children for this. They came out of the other side of the system unemployable and in debt. They feel lost and angry, unable to think of life past the burden of their student loans. And many of them, not all, feel that capitalism is somehow to blame, that the world of profits is somehow divorced from the 
well-being of people. It's criminal when profits are doled out to banks and to uh, and too big to fall businesses by the government with money taken from the taxpayers. But what about the real profits, not stolen goods, in which entrepreneurs take risks and business people add value when the profits are the reward for serving the people's needs? So the bamboozled have taken to the street. They would like their student debts to be wiped out, that the people be bailed out like the bankers and the crony big businesses or even worse, they get it in their heads that all higher education henceforth should be paid by the government. It doesn't matter whether there is a market demand for expertise in a course or study uh, of study or not. As the system has grown up that encouraged enormous debt for non-performing assets, namely schooling in things that won't pay off, people are still falling for it. But Markets aren't mocked forever. There has to be some painful write-down in central bank distorted asset values before the economy can regain solid footing. This is just as true for higher education as it was for the real estate. In other words, this education bubble that has been forming is going to hit a point where it's going to burst just like the housing bubble did. It won't be pretty. We're not sure how this will play out for those who've misallocated their time and energy based on false signals and with nothing but debt to show for it. But the stories that we told ourselves about what's valuable were built on distortions that are, are now coming to an end. What he's talking about there, these, the, the idea of the, mis, the misrepresentation that everybody should go to college, and even now it's getting the it's their right and the government ought to pay for it and this type of thing. And he said, remember his first statement? Not everybody needs to go to college or even should go to college. But they have bought the lie that uh, you can't make it in this world without a college degree. I've only got a couple more lines and I want to say something. I'll, I'll hold that thought. Reality is asserting itself and the reality is that entrepreneurship is what drives wealth creation, not going into debt to be taught what wealth creation is secondary to cultural studies or worse, that wealth creation is downright, downright evil. Now, that, that's what, what he's saying. Now, one thing that, and that's the condensed version. One thing he says is that half of the people in college are below average. Half. There's reason, right? Well, and he's saying the great majority of young people, I say young, just people in general that are going to colleges, have no business going there. It's not that they don't have an IQ. There's a lot of people in college that don't belong there that have a high IQ. But the, uh, the trades, the uh, things that people can do to start up their own business or get in... Uh, be a plumber, electrician, or whatever else, these things are sorely uh, needing these people who are in college that went into debt thinking they're going to get out because they have a degree, uh, they've got the world by the tail. But what they find out is they have a degree, and there's a zillion others that have a degree just like them. All the jobs are taken, and the debt is due for their loans, and they're not happy campers about it. In today's, today's economy, 
Just because you have a degree doesn't mean that it's going to relate to a job whereby you can buy a house or support your family. This is what people are finding out. This is that bubble that's going to burst. And the reason that this has been created is because people have bought the lie that you have to have a college education in order to be successful. And that's not true at all. Now, there, he said there are the hard scientists, uh, 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 science uh, and engineering jobs, of course, they need uh, college degrees. But what about the people that could be starting their own business when mom and dad chunk out a hundred grand so their kids can go to school? What they get for it usually is a child that may graduate, and if they do, they're just in a, a number of a sea of graduates that have college degrees. And when their children come home, they find out who is this person? I don't know them. Their values have been changed. If they don't have a very strong um, doctrinal background, they are going to fall for all the lies, and it's, it's, it's just really a sad situation. By the way, that's one reason that I started teaching the, uh, the young people's class nearly a year and a half ago is because I wanted to prepare the young people, give them the challenges that they're going to be faced with when they leave this, this place. We have a whole lot of homeschoolers here, and that's a good thing. But they are kind of in a cocoon. They've been somewhat sheltered from the zoo of, of uh, regular, regular school. And so I'm trying to prepare them, both cultural for the cultural shock that's coming their way, for the uh, immorality that they know much better than I do what it is, even the homeschoolers. Uh, I, when we graduated from college, most, I mean, from high school or from, uh, even if we didn't, back in that era, morality wasn't the same that it is today. Uh, in fact, immorality is the, is the name of the game today. Now, I know a little bit of what I speak because I went to college. And I was like so many that had not a clue as to what I wanted to be. And so, uh, and I would not have gone to college if I did not have a, a, a scholarship. And I had several offers, and I thought, well, if I don't take up uh, one of these and try it, I'll, I might regret it later. So that's why I went. I had no desire to go, but I thought, you know, I don't want to regret at least not experiencing college and see what it has to offer. But if, you, if you're going there and you don't know what you want to be, it's like taking off in your car without a destination in mind. It's just kind of futile. And after a while, I finally decided after a year, I convinced myself at the end of that year, I had a passing average as far as grades are concerned. Uh, I could have done better, but I wasn't where I wanted to be. I was uh, a freshman, <coughs> and I was playing uh, first string on the varsity football team. And so I proved to myself I could do it if I want to. It's just that I did not want it. It was not for me. I was like so many other, uh, I don't know about young girls, but for young men, they follow in their father's footsteps or whatever their father did because they've been exposed to that. They know something about it, and if they have a liking for it, they usually follow that, that area, and that's what I did. My, my granddad and my dad and my uncle were all plumbers. I had been around that field all my life. And so I wanted to get out into the real world and start making my way. 
And I had to go to three and a half years of apprenticeship school at night in order to do it. And I had people looking at me and say, you are absolutely a lunatic. You give up a four-year full-paid scholarship at A&M to come here and go to school at night in order to be a plumber. I said, that's right, and I love it. And I did. I excelled. I mean, I was, because I knew this is what I wanted to do in life. And so I was paying attention. I was just eating it up. I loved it. As opposed to, I can still remember, I was in a lab. At A&M lab means it lasts about four hours, something like that. And I was required to take geology. Well, I have about as much interest in geology as I do wearing a tutu. It's just not my thing. And I can remember it was about three and a half hours of it had already passed, and they passed out a cigar box full of what looked like to me gravel. There's a bunch of rocks in there. And they said, now we want you to take these rocks and you give each one of them a name and say what era it came from, the Paleozoic and all this. And, uh, and I started looking at that, and I looked out the window, and I started thinking, what in the world am I doing here trying to name these rocks? I have no idea how this is going to help me in the future. And it was right at that time I thought, I'm going to finish this year, but when I'm done here, I'm not going to come back and spend four hours in a geology class trying to name some rocks that look like they got out of the parking lot to me. And so, and uh, this is, by the way, I'm talking about young people that do not have something in mind. And I'm not saying that if you have a college degree that it can't help you out somewhere along the way. Maybe it can. But you have to consider the cost and you have to consider that most young people don't know what they want to be. If they want to be an engineer, they want to be a, 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 a doctor or something like that, I'd say go for it. Get the whole schmear. Go to college. There's so many others. There, there, unfortunately, there are, there are young men in schools that can take a motor apart and put it back together and make it hum. I mean, they have this knack, and they love to do it, but they say, no, you can't take these courses. You have to take the pre-college courses because if you want to be a success in life, you have to have a college degree, and that is a lie. And a lot of people are finding out the hard way. And while I'm on a toot here, I thought I'd tell you something else. When I got out of college, uh, it was the Vietnam War was going on. And even though I had experience of having, a, a, I, I was a, a, a foreman, in fact, a superintendent in the biggest uh, mechanical contracting business in the Southwest. And I had a lot of responsibility. I had men that I had uh, been essentially uh, commanding for a while. But I would not be even considered for officer candidate school in the military. And you know why? You have to have a college degree. Now that's, we're talking about 40-something years ago. And I'm thinking, this is absurd. Because here, they would pass me over, uh, uh, not that I, I didn't get into to the uh, military. I, I, I could, I'm trying to shorten this. Um, I, I was deferred because they started deferring uh, 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 plumbing apprentices. But anyway, uh, I had the leadership skills. I had the uh, responsibility, experience, courage, humility. I had everything that makes a good military officer. But I would not be considered because I didn't have a sheepskin. And let me tell you something. I went to college, and I know they don't teach 
those type of things at college. You don't learn them there. And I think it's a, it's a shame that they still follow that policy that you're not considered officer material unless you um, have graduated from college. It just shows the, the smirky, uh, uh, pompous attitude that people have. Even when I was in high school, I graduated high school in 1966. That was a long time ago. And even then, they, I, I felt it was insulting when they, my fellow students would come up to me and they would ask me, what college are you going to? They didn't ask me, are you going to college? It was, what college are you going to? And if you weren't going to college, then you would kind of look like, you know, you're just kind of a second-class citizen. Somehow you just kind of were found behind the rock somewhere and you might stumble through life and try to get by, but you're certainly not going to be a success. Credentials are important in some things, but credentials don't mean that the person that uh, has them is necessarily worth his weight. And I probably said more than I should have, but I, I said it. Now, and that, isn't that different from what you hear? I mean, the, the standard thing is, this is why the parents, people don't think for themselves anymore. Everybody says, oh, yes, I'm, uh, you see it on TV all the time. Uh, somebody wins some money, uh, uh, comes into some money somehow, and they say, well, what are you going to do with the money? Oh, well, first thing I'm going to do is get my kids a college education and tuition squared away. I've been saving for all this, and that's fine, but listen, most parents, if they took that hundred grand that they're going to spend on their children to go through college and got them set up in something, some endeavor they really wanted to pursue, some business or help them out somewhere, I think they would be giving them a lot better start than all these kids that are in college. And listen, a lot of kids are in college, and all it is is the next high school. They're there to play. They're there to not have the responsibilities of life, and they don't. It's it stymies their their um, their maturity in some ways. Now I've said it all, so I'll just pass on. But you don't hear that too often because people don't think. Now if you ever want to get get accolades and have everybody, oh, yes, that's a great statement. Just say, now make sure that your kids go to college because after all, you can't be a success without a college degree. Yeah? Well, tell old Walmart guy, what's his name? Sam Walton that. There's a ton of people that, that had what it takes and they didn't need a college degree. Now, maybe a college degree would have helped them out, but uh, we'll just press on now. We're into uh, getting the gospel right and we're into lordship salvation is where we left it and we're just going to speed right through that. Y'all remember lordship salvation we went over? It's adding something other than faith to Christ. And they said, well, here we are. That was fast, wasn't it? <laughs> well, I need to press on. Uh, by the way, here's that last verse we covered. These are all the verses that have faith alone and Christ alone. Maybe you jotted them down. That's not all of them. I noticed some that they left out, um, like Galatians 2.16. And I don't know, do they, have, they don't even have Titus 3.5 in there. Some they left out, but that's a pretty good list. All right, here we're starting tonight. Now. 
if I haven't stepped on your toes yet, I'm pretty sure that I will before it's over tonight. So this is my night for y'all to wear combat steel-toed boots. The difference between lordship salvation and true gospel given in the Bible is not based on semantics or context. It is the difference between works and faith, life and death. You got that? When we're talking about the gospel and lordship salvation, it says you have to make Jesus Christ lord of your life and you have to continue to produce these works. And if you don't do it, you weren't really saved to begin with. Uh, That is not just a difference in uh, semantics or in in, in the uh, context of things. We're talking about a different gospel. This is um, from Charles Ryrie, Balancing the Christian Life. This is a quote from him. He says, as Ryrie has stated, quote, the message of faith only and the message of faith plus commitment cannot both be the gospel. Therefore, one of them is a false gospel and comes under the curse of perverting the gospel or preaching another gospel, Galatians 1, 6 through 9. You remember what Galatians 1, 6 says? It doesn't matter if it's an angel, whoever it is that preaches another another gospel, let him be anathema. That means curse to hell. So, it's preaching another gospel, and this is a very serious matter. Some call the, the view presented in this article easy believism or cheap grace, but nothing about it is easy or cheap. Is grace ever cheap? Absolutely not, for it costs God his only son. We've talked about that already, remember, in this easy believism. All right, now here we go. Don't argue. Uh, I was going to make this part methodology, but I decided to do it something different. I might still make it methodology. This is about the methodology when you're giving the gospel, when you're imparting biblical truth to people, this are, these are things we need to remember. And the number one thing, look at that, don't argue. And I know you're tempted to do it sometimes. I know I am too. Believers must be careful not to forcefully insist that salvation is by faith alone to people who embrace lordship salvation. I mean, it's really easy to talk to someone and say, oh, no, you, you can't just have faith. You've got to have works, and they have to, you have to endure the end and all this. And you, and you say, no, you don't. And they say, yes, you do. No, well, you, no, you don't. Yes, you do. No, you don't. I mean, it can get, fall into that pretty easy. And we can't let that happen. Look at this. We don't win unbelievers to Christ by telling them that they are wrong or by arguing with them. We're going to see what happens when you start arguing. And I know that you do it. You know why I know? Because you tell me. I've had people come up to me and say, well, this person said so-and-so, and I told no, you're wrong. And they're never going to be. I'm thinking, you know, they're thinking they're, they're, they're doing a really good thing. Uh, telling me how they stood up for the faith because they were arguing with the they argued them down is essentially what they're saying, and so I'm thinking I need to address this, and here I'm addressing it, and we got a skeleton crew here tonight. Well, maybe they'll get it on tape or something. We do not win unbelievers to Christ by telling them that they are wrong or by arguing with them. If you put an unbeliever on his defensive, he will either put up an impenetrable wall or consider the conversation, a competition, or debate that he must win. Oftentimes we are tempted to argue, foolishly thinking that if we win the argument, the person will accept the gospel. Have you ever been there? I don't want to know because I already know. 
It's so tempting. I mean, we are so blessed that we have had doctrine taught to us over a period of time. We have the fundamentals, the dynamics of the Christian life for the church age. We have them down. And when we hear somebody trot something out that is absolutely ludicrous, we like to jump on it like a duck on a June bug. I've got that one. I'll show them how they're wrong. Or an unbeliever thinks, oh, yeah, you've got to be good to go to heaven. Oh, what, what, what's our first, what's the first thing we want to say? Oh, no, you don't. No. The Bible doesn't say that. And what he's doing, he's thinking, oh, this is an argument. This is a competition. Bring it on. See? He's not listening anymore. He's competing. Now i got my glasses all haywire here. Just because you win the argument, you can win an argument and lose a soul. It's not about winning an argument. So, I, got, I have not so. All we have done is alienate them and made it harder for them to be saved. When you argue with someone, an unbeliever, you're making it harder for them to be saved. Some are even insulted by such a remark. When you say, not so, or you're saying you're wrong. I look at a lot of guilty faces out there, I think. I don't know. Some of you might be mild-minded, but if you've got my type of personality, that's the first thing you want to do. It's just like holding a, bu- a pit bull. But you're holding him. Second, you know, they, they said something that besmirched God's grace. Green light. Attack. So if some are insulted by such a remark as saying you're wrong, they will hold on tighter to the unbiblical notion they embrace, and there's a good possibility that their emotions will get involved. And you don't want that. I mean, if you make it a competition by saying you're wrong, and they're going to say, oh, well, we'll see about that, they don't, they're not open-minded anymore. And if their emotions get involved, they're not going to like you. You know, I think people accept the gospel better from people they like than people they don't like. It's just like people who are a waiter or a waitress. I think that they get a better tip from people that like them. They'll listen to people more than they like. And when you're straining at the leash and telling people you're wrong, it's a very good possibility they're not going to like you. They're going to get on the other side of the table from you. And if their emotions get involved, and if your emotions get involved, uh uh-oh, That's hard to overcome. Some people have developed hair triggers on certain issues because they have been yelled at and ridiculed by believers who are trying to prove that they were right. I don't know what the issue is. It might be going to church. It might be smoking. It might be homosexuality or it might be salvation. Whatever it is. There are some unbelievers. There are some people out there that have been in these arguments with Christians and it's a sore subject. And when you bring it up, boom, they're automatic. It's a hair trigger. They're mad at you already. So those other Christians have done, they haven't helped by arguing and putting these people on the defenses. They made it harder. You have a harder job now. Many unbelievers will not even talk to believers about anything they consider to be spiritual because they lump all believers the same. They've had arguments with believers. They, they, they see Christians as people that are holier than thou. They're self-righteous. They're hypocrites. 
and they're trying to push their religion on me, and especially in this particular air that I've gone to war with them, when it comes up, bam! Either the, the defensive wall goes up or else they're on attack mode, one or the other. Use discernment. Phony baloney, junk religion seen on TV has turned off so many people. Now, I know that that's not a distinguished type of description, but it communicates, and that's all I'm interested in. They think that all believers are like the nut jobs they see on TV, so they avoid a conversation with any Christian. With Christians, other, others have had bad experiences going to church because they have been donned for money, and people have judged them and gossiped about them. They think all churchgoers are hypocrites, so they have no desire to talk to people who go to church. I've run into them. I think, have you all heard my account of when I had my windshield fixed in the parking lot of the Baptist church? Some say yes, some say no. Well, I'm going to give it to you because it perfectly illustrates the point. There's a guy, and he's still around, that fixes cracked windshields. And one day he was in the parking lot of uh, a Baptist church that's close to my house. And I saw it, and I pulled in there, and I said, uh, hey, can you fix my, idea, my, my windshield here? And he says, well, well, sure, just get out, and we'll all do it right here. So as we were talking, he said, well, what do you do? I said, well, I'm a pastor. He said, oh. <laughs> you know, you can kind of tell sometimes when people, he didn't say, oh. He said, oh. I said, yeah. I said, uh, what? I said, do you go to church? He says, no. I said, you don't. He said, I said, why? He said, a bunch of hypocrites, and all they want is your money. He says, and a bunch of uh, self-righteous hypocrites that do nothing but just talk about you and get your money. And he's saying this to a pastor. And then I really shocked him. I said, I agree 100%. And he looked at me like this. He he said, what do you mean? I said, you're right. I said, that's what most churches are all about. And so uh, he, was, he, he started really warming up to me then. He said, really? He said, I never heard. I didn't think that would be coming from you. I said, yeah, that's religion. I said, you know, Christ, it wasn't into religion. Christ was into grace, you know, going to the cross, paying for our sins, all that type of thing. So uh, while I was talking to him, a member of that church pulled up into the parking lot. It was a woman. And she goes over to the, the we were about 50 feet from the building. And she comes up to the, she goes to the uh, building and, you know, we kind of wave at her. And here she comes right over where we were. And she said, um, do y'all, do y'all have permission to be on this parking lot? Now the church might hold 30 people maybe. And the parking lot was completely empty. Nobody was on it. And I looked at him, and, I, and we both said, well, we didn't know we needed permission to be on your parking lot. And he, th <laughs> he thought that he was going to get in good with her. And so he says, well, he's a pastor. <laughs> and she said, you are? And she said, yeah. She said, where? I said, Country Bible Church. And she said, yeah, we've heard of you. And turned around and walked away. And then we're both dumbfounded. What is she talking about? He thought it was going to help, and she, she wheeled around on her heel and went back inside. And she's, yeah, we've heard of you. So 
We didn't know what to do then. And so we were thinking, well, I guess we better get off the parking lot. But before we did, she gets in her car and, boom, she's out of there. Didn't look at us or anything. Like this, see? And I started laughing. And he did too. He's like, what were we talking about? <laughs> so my, what, you, what, what got me on all this is that, see, he had a hot-button issue of churches. He had gone to churches. He had a bad taste in his mouth. And I didn't even, I didn't even have to tell him that all churches are not like that because he was talking to a pastor that agreed with him, which shocked him. I mean, that guy was so discombobulated by the time I left, I don't think he could find his way back to that parking lot if he wanted to. Point is, these hot-button issues, some people develop. Because people have handled, handled them wrong. Now, these people will give you a hard time if they are in the mood to argue. They may chat with you for a while, but if they don't want to go there, they will just change the subject. In other words, if they have the time and you want to talk to them about Jesus Christ, the gospel, God, whatever that they see as a spiritual issue... If they're in the mood to argue, yeah, they'll bring it on. But if they don't have the time or they're not in the mood, they'll just say, oh, they'll just change the subject. Have y'all experienced this with some people? It, probably one reason is because so many Christians have muddied, not only muddied the water, they made our job a hundred times harder. And our job is not to do that for other Christians as well. Perhaps the greatest reason believers have a hard time engaging others in conversation about Jesus Christ, the gospel, or the Bible is because they are abysmally ignorant regarding spiritual matters and don't want their ignorance to show. They're smart in one thing. If you don't open your mouth, nobody can accuse you of being stupid. And so they just don't open their mouth. Uh, some are afraid that any conversation involving God, heaven, hell, eternity, Jesus Christ, evolution, the rapture, the Ten Commandments, prayer, divine healers, spiritual gifts, tithing, war, or the Bible is too controversial to discuss. They are afraid someone will get upset. So I'm talking about two different kinds of people. There are some people that are so gentle souls, they don't want to do anything that would ruffle the feathers of someone. And so they... they steer away from any issues that might be controversial. And then there are those who, they're not opposed to ruffling feathers, but if you start talking about the Bible or Jesus Christ or something that they think is spiritual, and they know that they don't know anything about it, they don't want to talk about it because they have nothing to add. And if they do talk about it, it's very possible, if not probable, that their ignorance is going to show, and they don't want that to happen. I'm giving you some reasons why people don't want to hear the truth. Well, now, do you know how to cut through all of this and reach people? I want you to write it down if you can write it. If not, just formulate it in your own mind. Do you know how to cut through all of this and reach people? You can still reach people. You can cut through all of this and still reach them. And you can... Fill in that blank with two words. Ask questions. Thank you. Yes. By asking questions. People can't argue with you when you're just asking questions. They shouldn't get upset. Now, here's the next thing. 
What if they say they don't want to talk about Jesus, salvation, spiritual things, etc.? What can you do? I mean, are you shut down there? I don't want to talk about that spiritual. I don't want to talk about that. What are you going to do? Who said that? <laughs> Steal my thunder up here. Ask them why. That's another question, you see. Don't come across as forceful, demanding, but like you're just curious. Oh, thank you. There you go. Um, it, that's the neat thing about questions. Whatever they say, you're going to question it. But you shouldn't do it in a, you better answer me. shouldn't be that demanding type tone. It should be, I don't understand. Why, why would you not want to talk about Jesus? Does, is that threatening? I mean, I, I just don't understand. I'm curious. Why wouldn't you? Well, I just wouldn't. What's my next question? Why? Why? I just want to talk to you. I, I just think this is an interesting uh, area. You know, I'm not going to judge you. I'm just curious what you think. You know, why should this be all off limits that people can't converse and just find out what each other thinks about something? Very unthreatening. You're just curious, see? That very possible might soften the hardest one to reach if they don't think it's going to be a competition, if you're not going to argue with them. You can even tell them. If you have to, say, listen, I won't even say a word. I won't even tell you what I think. I won't say anything. Whatever you say is fine with me. I just would like to know what it is. But then you have to keep to it. They can't, you can't, if they say, well, I think you've got to work your way to heaven, you can't say, uh, well, forget what I just said. You've got to stick to it. So you ask them why. Here's a quote from um, volume 143, Biblio Sacra. This is Dallas Theological Seminary. Quote, The practical outworking of lordship salvation teaching is fraught with serious problems. How much commitment is necessary? Now, this ought to be familiar to you. How long must the commitment last? If only committed people are saved, how can the Scripture speak of carnal Christians? What about the saints in Corinth? Y'all remember the saints in Corinth, right? I mean, they ran the gamut. You know, from legalism to whoremongering, they had, it, they had the market uh, covered in everything. And yet, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they were believers. How do we know? The Bible says, where does it say it? Yeah, I think it's the second verse. Somebody open Corinthians for me. First Corinthians, first chapter. I think it's the second or third verse. It says, who have been sanctified, uh, set apart for blessing. So these are sanctified saints. Saints. Sanctified. And they did everything you can think of to embarrass hell. Anybody find it yet? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, it's probably the first two or three verses, something like that. What verse is that, Danny? Verse 2, okay. First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. So we know that they were believers. So if anybody ever calls you on that, uh, I don't believe that unbelievers can be sanctified in Christ. 
He's talking about believers there. Now, what about these Corinthians? Did they ever yield to Christ's lordship? What about righteous Lot, whose salvation cannot be questioned according to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7 through 8, and about whom not one good thing is said in the Old Testament about Lot, and yet it says that he was a righteous man. What kind of righteousness is that, by the way? That's right. That's positional or imputed. Did he ever submit and commit his life to the sovereignty of the Lord? These are good questions, are they not? To ask someone. You're not arguing. He is not this person that says you can ask these questions to someone who is in lordship salvation. You're not arguing. You're just trying to understand what they believe and how, how it can jive with the rest of these things. Witnessing for Christ is not talking without listening Christians tend to talk when they should be listening to discover what the non-Christian is thinking and what he believes. Contrary to what most people think, when you are witnessing to someone, actually you should be doing more listening than talking, especially at the beginning. Find out what is this person about. During the course of some religious discussions, an unbeliever might say, I believe all you have to do to go to heaven is keep the golden rule and the Ten Commandments. The Christian does not have to disagree at this point, but may help the non-Christian think his way to the truth by saying, that is an interesting point of view. After perhaps a, a pause, the Christian might then ask the non-Christian, by the way, how are you doing? What's he doing? First of all, he's asking a question, isn't he? In other words, he's saying, you've got to live by the golden rule and the Ten Commandments, you're, you're good to go. You can go to heaven. He's saying, how's that working out for you? <laughs> Isn't that great? Huh? They can't get mad at you. You're just saying, hey, I want to know. That's the way. Maybe I ought to try it. How's it working out? Well, he goes on to say, <laughs> um, the honest non-Christian will admit that he is not doing very well. Then the Christian might add, well, that is why Christ died. He died to pay the penalty for the times that we do not keep the golden rule of the Ten Commandments. You see how that can lead right into it by, first of all, asking a question? There's no arguing there. But see, here's the, I think this is the spice in the whole thing. When you're not talking by giving the gospel, and usually people go up, do you believe in Jesus Christ? And yes, okay, well, you're good to go, and they don't know anything more than that. But the spice is not knowing where they're going to go. That, you understand? The spice, that's what makes it interesting. It is not knowing what they're going to say. You don't have a clue what they're going to say. And I know that scares the feathers off of some of you. But it should be, I say, it's, it's the spice. And you don't have to be intimidated because whatever they say, what are you going to do? Ask another question. They might say you got to have both ears and your near nose pierced to go to heaven. And you say, really? Wow. How are you going to handle that one, huh? How about with another question? Where did you get that idea? That was by the Volume 4 Schaefer Theological Seminary Journal. <clears throat> we need to listen to people without without interrupting them. Now, that got everybody. 
including me. That's the exclamation point. The temptation is to straighten out false doctrines and misconceptions, but don't do that. Hear them out. We not only need to find out what they believe, but why they believe what they believe. Some people are good at expressing what they believe, but it really never, they never really think about why they believe it. If I'm going to talk to somebody about anything of a spiritual nature, I want to know, well, what do you believe? Where are you coming from? I'm not going to go up there and tell them what I believe because all they have to do after I make the most wonderful discourse that was ever made, all they have to say is, well, yeah, that's fine, but I don't believe that. <laughs> I don't agree with that. <laughs> and what do you got? Nothing. You need to find out where they're coming from and help them understand that it's either on track or it's not. Now, when you, <clears throat> when you ask them what they believe, there are some people, let's say that uh, a person is, I don't know, uh, let's say a Jehovah Witness. You ask, well, what do you believe about Christ? What do you believe about salvation? And they're da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and they can just roll it all out. Or you might be talking to a Catholic, or you might be talking to a Methodist, or whoever it is. You ask them, what do you believe? And they're able to articulate it right out, and you, that's fine. And they're really not threatened by that, because they've heard it, they've grown up with it. They can repeat it. But when you ask them, why do you believe that? Watch them, it's like catching a deer in the headlights. They never thought about why do they believe it. They know what they believe, but they don't know why. If they were honest, it would probably be because, well, that's what I was taught growing up. That's what my parents believe. That's what my family, most of my family believe. I've always believed that. Yeah, but you're a grown person now. You're a grown adult. Why, why do you believe it now? What is it based on? Do you understand the importance of not only hearing what they believe, but ask them, why do you believe it? What source is this coming from? This is the same even with unbelievers, some people that don't believe the Bible. In fact, Carrie was on the Internet today with a guy that is a dyed-in-the-wool, hardcore, unbeliever, liberal that loves Obama. And she has been giving him the gospel. She has, And he's just been batting it away, just throwing it. Every time she said something, well, I don't believe the Bible. And so she gave him five evidences of the Bible. One of them was prophecy. And he said, well, that doesn't mean anything. I can write prophecy. That doesn't mean, you know, nothing was penetrating. So I told her, I said, you know, what you ought to do is start asking him what he believes. First, do you believe in God? Do you believe, we already know he doesn't believe in Jesus Christ and he doesn't believe in the Bible. Do you believe in God? And how do you think the world came into existence? <coughs> and what do you think happens to you after you die? And wasn't long, we got another email. You know what? Every one of those questions, the answer was? I don't have time to talk about that right now. It's too complex. Oh, too complex. He had time to grill everything, every bit of information that we gave to him. He threw it back in our face. So we just asked him a few basic questions. He doesn't have time to answer that. It's too complex. I have a suspicion that he knows that if he, whatever he says, questions are coming. And he doesn't want questions. Because everything that we gave him, 
He just threw back in our face and said, where's the proof? Where's the proof? Where's the proof? So when we ask him, what do you think about God exists? One way or the other? What do you think? How does the world come into being? What happens after you die? Whatever he says, you know what we're going to be saying? Where's the proof? We're standing on the Bible. We're standing on God's Word. This is what we believe. Now, you don't accept the Bible. You don't accept our faith. That's fine. You know, that's, that's the way it's got to be. But I do want to know what are you basing all your beliefs on. And I think he's a coward because he won't even come out and say what it's based on. Because he's a smart guy. He knows probably that the questions are coming if he, if he says. Well, the point is, when you're asking questions, when you're, pop, when you're using this paradigm here, you are forcing the people to think about what they believe and why they believe it. They may have never done that before. And it's much harder to do that than just bat away what someone else believes. Even though you give the credible evidence. No, I don't believe that. Ask them what they believe. You see the power of questions here? And you're going to have to overcome this tendency when somebody says something that you know is not doctrinally correct to say, you're wrong. Listen, I know the answers. I, I, know that, I know that this isn't true. I can prove it to you. Just listen to me. They're not going to listen to you. They're going to tune out, and especially if you make it a competition, the last thing they're going to do is say that you're right. I'm out of time. And I think it'll make a difference if we do this. I've seen I've seen an example of it today. Used it today. Started asking this guy that was a a diehard unbeliever, flat out rejected Jesus Christ and the Bible. Where's the proof that God wrote it? We gave him five evidences that he just threw back. Well, yeah, that doesn't mean anything. Now I want you to understand. Anytime you give them biblical truth that you know is correct. You're basing your eternal destiny on it. And just because you have, don't think it means anything to them. What's going to mean something to them is what they think, and that's what you have to do is challenge them to think with questions. And when they wind up thinking they don't have any answers, that's when they're ready to start hearing some truth. Let's close. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that you have given us your word. The Holy Spirit guides us. We just need some practical uh, teaching, some pragmatic paradigms to reach these people because they're so quick just to turn us off, challenge us, disregard us. But the Holy Spirit can certainly take these questions and have them lose sleep over them, which is a good thing. We pray that you will help us to remember these things and when we're tempted to tell people they're wrong and set them straight by giving them a whole load of doctrine that we will just ask them questions and lead them to the truth. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.